John, I'm you know me. I, I want to support the economy as best I can, and I don't like it when anybody's losing their job. But I am relishing in the death of retail. <laughs> Good for you. Yes. Fewer lines at the outlet. No. Never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. I, few, people, few people have. I have, a, I have what they call lateral thinking. <laughs> now, did you take pictures of everything you bought? Why would I do that? You need to run it by me. Oh, for my Instagram account? I should do that. <laughs> and mom. And a few other people, because we, we don't trust your taste in clothing. What are you talking about? It's all gray t-shirts I, I, with you. I dress fine. And pants that don't fit. And gray t-shirts go with everything. My Greg, pants fit just no, fine. No. No. Greg, we worry. We worry. Okay? This is an intervention. Have they? No, have this it? is your intervention. Great, you got everybody who loves me. What's the? <laughs> this is a horrible intervention. <laughs> what? What? What is the? Say yes to the dress for men. It's say okay to the shirt. I think. <laughs> say fine to the shirt. Yeah. It's an Amy Schumer skit. Say fine. Yeah. Say fine. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Aspiring Snobs podcast, where we talk about the current state of our economy. <sighs> Guys, coal is coming back. All right. <laughs> It's bigger and better than ever. I'm telling you. And it's clean now, okay? Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. need to worry. Some people have said that the the current administration and the current Congress and pa- or the current political party in power wants to, wants to turn this into Nazi Germany again. I disagree. They want to turn it into China. <laughs> we should polls only... on the way back. And we could only be so lucky. Yep. Religious tests, no free press. Mm-hmm. It's going to be great. It's gonna yep. be... Look, I know it sounds scary now, but just... just... Give it a few years. No, and then we'll, I can't we'll wait to wear a diaper it. on a train. Yeah. It's going to be great. I know. I can't wait to work 16-hour days. Because mm-hmm. at least it will be made in America. Yep. And that feels good. These are all disses, by the way. Let's go screw yourself, China. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Land of the free. You just made it real. Okay. Mm-hmm. I did. Because I love America. You know what I love most of all about America, John? What? American beauty. My name is Lester Burnham. This is my neighborhood. This is my street. This is my life. I'm 42 years old. In less than a year, I'll be dead. Of course, I don't know that yet. And in a way, I'm dead already. Beauty. A plus segue. Damn right it was. <laughs> okay. Actually, I learned American Beauty refers to a, a cut of, not a cut, but a particular breed of rose. Oh, that would Which I actually sense. had no idea. I thought, you know, it just, sounded, it just sounded like a nice title. Exactly. And since the movie's obsessed with beauty and outward appearance. Um, okay, real talk, guys. Patented John Mantell, <laughs> real talk. <laughs> we we oh, a little insight into how we pick movies. We always genuinely pick something, most of the time that has some cultural relevance, and most of the time, well, yeah, we, I'd say all the time, yeah, and most of the time we pick something that you know we actively are looking forward to watching. Yes, I'll be honest with this pick. I picked this because it has a reputation of being you know quote unquote overrated. <laughs> That's true. This won Best Picture back in 1999, which mm-hmm. was a seminal year in American cinema. Mm-hmm. You have films like The Matrix, Magnolia, Fight Club, uh, the Mod Squad movie. <laughs> <laughs> the remake of SWAT. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That was 2003, John. Oh, get, get your facts straight. It's all a blur. I was yeah. so high back then. <laughs> in any event, but this was a this was a big important year at least in the at least in the minds of young adult men like us <laughs> and so to see kind of a, a silly suburban drama take home the best picture prize um it's, it's it's seen as a bit of an injustice yeah and so i picked this movie because i wanted to see you know where the cultural consensus lied and to see how potentially overrated it was it turns out extremely overrated <laughs> Because this movie is garbage. Hang on. This is not by far the worst movie we've watched for this podcast. This is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Hang on. This movie is loathsome (laughs) and inexcusable. I hated every second of it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you compared it to, I don't know, genocide or something like that. Sorry you put it on that I did not go that far. I did not go that far. All right. Don't put words in my mouth. Okay. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I've never seen you. I've never heard you. I, John, I'm, I'm stunned by this. I've never seen I've never seen you pour so much antipathy for one thing before. Mm, I just much less oh. a movie starring the great Kevin Spacey and Annette Bening. If I were if I were Roger Ebert, this is my north. I hated, <laughs> hated, hated this movie. Nice, nice. I should probably point out this is actually a very important movie for me. Oh. This was a very formative movie for me because I was a I was a budding young screenwriter when this movie came out, and, and I think for maybe a couple young other young aspiring writers still aspiring, <laughs> <laughs> um, they took to heart the old adage "write what you know," mm. and for comfortable middle class white people like me, <laughs> what we knew was suburban life with a bit of a you know satirical energetic edge. So to see. American Beauty be so successfully, both critically and financially, um, was a bit of an inspiration for us. So I've seen this movie many, many times. This was your first exposure to it. I'm sorry. It'll be um, hopefully my last. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was it was like exposure to Ebola for you. <laughs> I mean, I, I, will... I get it. There's the artsy kid who's filming everything and finds beauty. And even the most simple thing. By the way, I'm gonna be swearing a lot because I'm gonna give. I'm gonna put on a little Mark affect and go like, "Holy fucking shit! Are you kidding me?" A lot. Okay. <laughs> we should. Yeah, we should explain. Mark is a is a funny character on YouTube. <laughs> I think Zebra Corner is the channel. Go check it out. It's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> so holy fucking shit! This kid like films like a plastic bag and he says it's beautiful. He films like a dead pigeon and says that's beautiful. He looks like the hottest girl in fucking school, and he says, like, nah, you ain't pretty. You're boring. This kid's, like, deep, dude. This kid's, like, fucking deep. <laughs> okay. I will readily admit this is the first time that I've seen it in years. Some of some of this movie has aged like sliced avocado. Some of it? Some of it? It's about, okay, a, it's should... about an upper-middle-class white guy and his problems. <laughs> it's not just about him. It's about the family. Oh. And it's got a bit of a satirical edge, so... In rewatching it, I'm not sure how much of it is supposed to actually resemble real human behavior. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> Annette Benning was nominated for this, and she is a freaking cartoon character in this. She is like a shrill harpy who just walks in with her mouth agape and her hands on her hips, just like, uh, what are you doing, Lester? Like, uh, it. oh, God, I just wanted to stab my eyes out every time she was on screen. It was horrible. Okay, hang on. Let's 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 set the scene, <laughs> shall we? Again, the year is nineteen ninety nine. I just have, I America, just have so America, many thoughts. The American so economy thoughts. is a rocket ship, it's just going off. Everything's everything's going great. It's the high time Clinton years. Let's go. Yes. Uh, again, like uh, the Monica Lewinsky thing, out of sight. George Bush, you know, wars, all that stuff, you know, gone. Financial <laughs> crisis, just cast it out of your minds. This is the go go nineties. Everything's great. And so we set our sight on a little, what I think is supposed to be a New Jersey home. It's a, it's very anomalous where where this movie's supposed to be set, but it's a, it seems like a pic, a picturesque American family. Yeah. You have the wife who's a real estate agent. She's she's a breadwinner. You have a father who's in magazine advertising. You know, works out of his cubicle. And you have a daughter in high school mm. who doesn't cause trouble and is not, you know, doing okay. So Great all way. our stock characters are in place. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing I I miss because. As, as you would expect, things go great, and you know, again, like everyone's just fine. It's just two hours of everyone being fine. No, of course they're hiding something deep going on underneath. Okay, for for Lester, our husband, yeah, it's 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 feelings of inadequacy and that life has passed him by. For the character played by Annette Bening, it's the pressure of being the breadwinner in the family and being a mother. And for the daughter, it's being disaffected and being uh, moody and uh, all the changes with puberty. So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not it's not coming from the most original place in the world, but. You know, how about a relatable place? How about that? No. <laughs> and here's why. Okay. Because in order to kind of capture the idea that, oh, this suburban life is really a facade, everyone is miserable, we have to at least get a sense that these people are happy. And we never once get a sense that these people were ever happy. And yes. so in my head, this is completely unrelatable because, again, they're all cartoon characters. They're all playing to the rafters. And B, we start at this anomalous place where everyone is miserable. And they make it this point that it's like, oh, our marriage is just a facade. For who? Because they never interact with anybody besides their next-door neighbors. To, like, in the community. We never see them do anything besides maybe go to, like, their daughter's cheerleading squad. A dance recital, yeah. Yeah. 
And also, their neighbors, uh, there's a gay couple who lives next door. Mm-hmm. They're in two scenes. And then the people who move just next door, the Fitz family, are fucking weirdos. And so we're expected we're expected to relate to these people that they have to put on a facade of a happy family. Well, they're doing a pretty horrible job because they're all screaming at each other as they're all piling into the car. And again, we never see them interact with anyone outside their immediate neighbors. So it's like, who, who are they performing for? You're right about that. There's no world get, building. Yes. There's no, like, it's just expects you. It's like, you relate to that's, these people because you're these people, right? Yeah, that's, that's what I missed. When I say it's trying to be relatable, it's trying to paint with a very kind of broad brush. You kind of got to lose some of the details. That's what I really wanted with some details. Mm-hmm. You said it looks like this family has never been happy. There was literally only one photo, a family photo, when they're smiling. They look like they're at a carnival. Mm-hmm. And their daughter, Janie, is about, I don't know, four or five years old. Exactly. That's the only sense we get. I thought, like, wouldn't they reminisce about, like, a, a family vacation they had? Mm-hmm. What about extended family? Like, what about times with grandma or grandpa or, you know... Exactly. And the daughter's, uh, Lester, like... Yeah, the Lester's the main character. Like, what about... Doesn't he have a brother or sister? Like, you know, aunts, uncles, like, anything? And the daughter's, like, sullen for no reason. And you see, like, Lester try to connect with her for, like, that one dinner scene. And it's like, you can't just expect to be my best friend. It's like, and why is she so embittered towards them? I never understood that. She's like, they only care about their sel- themselves. They never pay attention to me. But God, leave me alone. It's like, okay, <laughs> what do you want, lady? And I get it. She's supposed to be like the, you know, not completely goth, but she's supposed to be the disaffected teenager who's just like over everything. Mm-hmm. But again, it's, again, you're just playing with stock characters. You know, it's just like, the teenager's a brat, you know? It's just, ugh. Yeah, the mom is a super energetic, but almost so needy shrew. <laughs> She's a harpy. Yeah. She has these, like... Da- yeah, the father is, is just downtrodden and dead-end by life. I, he's going through a midlife yeah, crisis. It. But John, John so how about... He's, yeah, he's unhappy with his job. He hates his co-workers. He's not getting sex from his wife, which he rightfully deserves. Am I right, guys? Am I right, guys? Am I right? Okay, okay. I, I don't think that was their intention, all right? <laughs> Why don't, we, why don't we cut them some slack? Okay, you seem to have very high standards for American Beauty. <laughs> it won Best right. Picture. That's, that's true. Expectations, you're right. Expectations should be high. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, I think what my major problem with this film is, is that it's not as smart as it thinks it is. And it's certainly not as profound as it thinks it is. No, it's... Well, well, when we explore the Ricky Fitz character, we see its pretensions to high art, and mm-hmm. there's there's a line in the movie: "Look closer." Like, oh god, <laughs> kind of looking closer. beyond the surface of things, but it doesn't it doesn't do anything to the story. Doesn't really illuminate that idea. No, and it doesn't. Now really... that I think about it, like everybody kind of remains ugly and miserable. <laughs> exactly, and also like there, the idea is that it's meant to be play for uh, play with facade, but mm-hmm. we're shown everything. So it's not like it's playing with the audience's perspective at all. Yeah. Like, there's this idea that maybe... So in the opening narration, we find out that Lester is going to end up dead by the end of the movie. And it might have been interesting if we were kind of like given like given it like a little murder mystery plot or something like that. And well, originally I, that's what it kind of was going to be. It was exactly. Gonna... And that's what it should have been. Again. You think like, so? Yeah. Like, maybe build the world up a little bit. Maybe like, again... And played a genre tropes? I don't think so, bro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Lord knows this movie's not playing with tropes at all. No, it's a totally unique vision of Americana <laughs> as he sa- as he shifts his eyes. <laughs> so our main character is played by Kevin Spacey. Mm-hmm. Um, he is going through a midlife crisis. Absolutely. He's well, the... we should probably explain, John. Obviously, the the characters aren't very likable or relatable, but maybe they go through a story wherein they change. <laughs> and so let's get into that story, huh? <laughs> okay, so Lester really is the only one who kind of goes through an arc. Kevin Spacey plays Lester Burnham. He's going mm-hmm. through a midlife crisis. Hates his job. His wife's a shrill. His daughter hates him. Mm-hmm. Nothing's going right for him. No. And so the progression he kind of goes through, he ends up kind of reverting a little bit back to his kind of teenage years. That's the big kind of our overarching arc throughout this movie. For him, yeah. He quits his job and is able to blackmail his boss into giving him a full year's pay. Yeah, which, which again, I... you know, our hero, everybody. Weirdly similar to Fight Club. Yeah. Which and... also plays on themes of, you know, materialism and not 
not being satisfied with things. Mm. So yeah, if I, just to make it more palatable to today's audiences who who have rightfully seen Fight Club and rightfully avoided American <laughs> Beauty up till now. <laughs> I mean, I don't love Fight Club, but it's definitely a much more we'll successful film. But yeah. yeah, my job consists of basically masking my contempt for the assholes in charge and at least once a day retiring to the men's room so I can jerk off while I fantasize about a life that doesn't so closely resemble hell. Well, you obviously have no interest in saving yourself. Brad, for 14 years I've been a whore for the advertising industry. The only way I could save myself now is if I start firebombing. Whatever. Management wants you gone by the end of the day. Well, just what sort of severance package is management prepared to offer me, considering the information I have about our editorial director buying pussy with company money, which I think would interest the IRS since it technically constitutes fraud. And I'm sure that some of our advertisers and rival publications might like to know about it as well, not to mention <laughs> Craig's wife. So he quits his job. He's able to blackmail his boss with the implication of like sexual harassment. Because gay, ew. Um, he starts smoking pot again because the next door neighbor kid who moves in is like a big pot dealer. Which, again, is part of the movie that hasn't aged well. He's dealing pot and they make it sound like he's like dealing heroin. And he's making like a fortune off it. He's like, I made 40 grand last year. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? No one makes that much off pot. <laughs> well, okay, again, let's. This is back in the war on drugs during the dare days, John. <laughs> I can see how people regarded dope as, you know, serious business. Mm, yeah. That, that had multiple meanings, by the way. I just want to point that out. Oh. Off the cliff. Oh, off the cuff. again, again. Yeah. And my turn of phrase has multiple meanings. Again, no, serious no, business as no in the financial stakes. And serious business as in the, as in the discipline stakes. No child so, left know. behind. If Greg has to explain mm -hmm. yeah. the mm -hmm. joke, then yeah. obviously that's a brilliant, it's That's a brilliant mind you're working with right here. Great, great, great. Esquire, call me. <laughs> you want to work for a magazine just like Lester? Look how unhappy he is. No, I no, I would be a correspondent for Esquire. I wouldn't oh. actually sit in a cubicle and try to sell ads to it. <laughs> Print is dead. It's true. Again, another reason why this movie is so dated. <laughs> so he quits his job. Yes. Blackmails his boss. Yes. Gets a full year's salary. And goes back to working at a fast food joint because that's what he did as a teenager. Exactly. And, and he finds some peace in that because, again, there's no responsibilities. There's very low stakes. Mm-hmm. And... Also, the soundtrack kind of changes. We get a lot more kind of 70s music. And he starts, like, hanging out in the garage, working out, trying to get buff. And the creepiest aspect of this whole kind of reversion thing is he falls in love. Uh, let's say he falls in lust yeah. with a 17-year-old. Janie's best, yeah, his daughter's best friend. Yeah. And <laughs> we'll just let that one hang there for a second. <laughs> yeah. And there's multiple fantasy sequences involving rose petals where she's naked and, you know, she's just coquettishly inviting him closer. Come hither. I think we have about three too many of those. Uh, yeah, I forgot how frequent it was. Because it happens once during the dance recital. Yeah. It happens again when she comes over for a sleepover. Mm -hmm. Happens a third time when they go to he goes to bed. I think she's still in the house, too. <laughs> the, yeah. the, her, his lust object is still in the house. <laughs> And these are and, like, I, and you you're right right about that. It is a lust object thing because at no point does he make any effort to like get to know her better. Like no, he's obviously not attracted to her intellect or and it's so anything else about her personality. It is literally just her appearance. Yeah, and it's he's like acting like a fucking gorilla. He's yeah. like like he's like again. There's no subtlety to it. He's like when he talks to her, he's like he, again he like reverts back to like an eight year old. It's like hi, how's it going? You going good? Like it's like it's so embarrassing. And again, but there's no the, subtlety it's designed, to the It's stylistically designed to be that way. <laughs> I know, but it's so surface level. He's designed to look kind of pathetic in this case. I guess, but it's like, again, couldn't they have played it multiple with multiple levels? Well, what's a, what's a multiple level to you? Like what? I don't know. Like maybe if he's he feels a little kind of conflicted about these feelings he's having about this girl. Because again, she's 17. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> Like again, I wanted a little nuance. Like he's like, I have these thoughts, but I know it shouldn't be having these thoughts. Yeah, like, maybe he could talk to I don't know a friend. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> None of these people have friends. No. Again, there's no one outside these people, which is why the whole a theme of like facade just falls apart for me. Because it's like, who are they performing for? There's no one outside this movie. That's true. Speaking of, speaking of having no friends, there's also the wife played by Annette Bening. Mm-hmm. 
we should probably explain her arc as well. <laughs> okay. Or lack of, or lack of one? <laughs> yes, that's very generous. <laughs> yeah. Because she, throughout the movie, she's kind of putting on airs of being a peppy, you know, super successful, happy wife. There's so many scenes where she's giving herself, like, these kind of, like, rote affirmations. You know, it's like, I am strong. I can achieve what I want. Like, you know, She these... listens to self-help tapes in, mm-hmm. in the car. And but again, like as soon as as soon as she closes the doors on her open house, you know, we see her crying breakdown. <laughs> I actually like that scene. No, it's horrible. Well, I actually like. So it's horrible acting, and I know that, I know why sequence. it's horrible. Here's why it's horrible acting because that's what? exactly what I would do in that scenario. Okay, and I'm a horrible actor. Okay, <laughs> exactly, it's real. <laughs> no, it's not. Her performance is so bad. It's very broad, but. I think there are like little emotional moments where I like, kind of identify with her. There's that moment where she tries and fails to sell a house. Mm-hmm. And I do like that sequence before where she gets down to her skippies and actually starts cleaning the house herself. Like I, I probably would have cleaned it the day before the open house, but whatever. <laughs> also, I love how she didn't bother to clean the pool, the main selling point of the house. Yes. But I, again, I kind of like emotionally connected with her in the moment. Or you're letting a character kind of fail. That I, that I like in, in dramatic storytelling is letting the character fail. Mm. But also I like, um, there's a scene later, they have a, they have a very confrontational dinner. Annette Benning tries to go to her daughter Janie and apologize. But again, her daughter's being very standoffish and disaffected. And, he, and she actually hits her and calls her a spoiled brat and says, like, we didn't even have our own house when I was a kid. And now look at all you have. How can you be unhappy? Mm. And kind of leaves it at that, and so that's that's one scene where I kind of like perked up. I was like, okay, okay. There's there's something emotional going on here, or at least something different. And we're seeing characters, or at least I can identify with characters in their failure. First, first her failing professionally, and now her failing in a role as a mom. Because you should, <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, any prospective parents out there, you should not hit your kids. <laughs> Life advice from Greg Mantel. Yeah. Look, I, I wish that you hadn't witnessed that awful scene tonight, but in a way, I'm glad. Why? So I could see what freaks you and Dad really are? Me? God. Oh, Christ. Mom. No, I'm glad because, uh... Because you're old enough now to learn the most important lesson in life. You cannot count on anyone except yourself. You cannot count on anyone except yourself. You know, it's sad but true. And the sooner you learn it, the better. Look, Mom, I really don't feel like having a Kodak moment here, okay? You ungrateful little brat! Just look at everything you have! When I was your age, I lived in a duplex. We didn't even have our own house. Okay, so there's one scene in particular I want to talk about. And again, okay. it, it shows what a massive failure of a movie this is. Um, <laughs> Speaking of failure? <laughs> she comes home, and there's a new car in the driveway. A yes. Pontiac Firebird. Classic car. She walks in, you know, mouth agape, hand on her hips. Where's the sedan? <laughs> Where's the Camry, John? The Camry. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Sorry. Again, we're painting with broad strokes. <laughs> Obviously, a Toyota Camry represents resignation in suburban life. <laughs> and Lester admits that he traded it in to get the car he always dreamed of having. And they have, like, kind of a little Which is imperfect, Nick, by the way. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, in terms of cartoon, yeah, go ahead and find a perfect, <laughs> a perfect Firebird or muscle car from that era for less than $30,000. <laughs> <laughs> So they have, like, a little kind of spat, but then it kind of turns into almost, like, a little, like, lovemaking session. Because, again, like, Lester's feeling vivacious. He's feeling more empowered. So he kind of... A little reconciliation. Yeah, and he starts to kind of put the moves on her. But he's holding a beer, and he almost spills the beer on the couch. And, you know, before they can kind of get too into it, she mourns him, like, you you, you could spill beer on the couch. Yeah. And he's, like, he's taken aback. He's, like, why do you care? This is a moment of realness we're having, and all you care about is stuff. And she's like, I don't, this is a $4,000 couch. And he's like, oh, you're so materialistic. You're well, he, so materialistic. He slams the pillow and says, it's just a couch. Yeah, just a couch. How and di- just a hammer at home, no child left behind. He says, this isn't life, this is just stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's just stuff. This coming from the character who just spent money on a, brand, on a new Pontiac <laughs> Firebird. <laughs> I got it, never thought of that. 
you know, this is just stuff. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'll go drive my expensive car I always dreamed of having. Um, excuse me, John. What if his hypocrisy was designed by the writer? Is he working on many levels here? <laughs> so in the scenario, you come out hating both people. <laughs> Great. I mean, I will admit, there is no character I enjoyed in this whole movie. So, yes, mission accomplished. Well, I, having returned to this movie, I was actually disappointed by... There's a there's a hugely overqualified cast in this movie. Oh, absolutely. And I missed a lot of the little bit players. So one of the neighbors is played by Scott Bakula. Oh, Scott Bakula. And this was a this was a guy who was a star of his own multi-season TV show. Mm-hmm. And he literally has about two lines in the movie. I'm like, why? Yeah. And again, I go, yeah. I was looking for like a friend character. Like, why couldn't he be a friend to <laughs> poor Kevin Spacey? Yeah, he's in like two and a half scenes with his partner, and it just mm-hmm. again, what a waste. I mean, yeah. Scott Bakula, if you're listening, I have a role for you, okay? And the role is for my hero, okay? And uh, <laughs> you've got the part, my friend. Okay. And I've got a dinner roll. It's my payment for years of entertainment. <laughs> Delicious. Flaky, buttery, awesome. <laughs> Good part. And there's also, I forgot, Allison Janney's in this movie. I completely wasted. Completely wasted, because she's... She plays Miss Fitz. Mm-hmm. Oh, we we, um, did, we haven't even talked about the Fitz yet. So the next no, door neighbors. We, let's get into the Fitz family because I want to get into oh, Chris God. Cooper's characters, yeah. especially <laughs> the Fitz. Okay, so as if we didn't have enough stock characters enough, <laughs> the Fitz family moves in right next door. Yep. The Fitz family is ruled over by Colonel Fitz. He's a military guy, played by Chris Cooper. Yeah. It's very subtle, but you can tell he's a military <laughs> guy because he's got a military style haircut. He has a ton of guns. And military a vaguely southern accent. A, a southern accent. We have one scene where he's watching TV, and he's watching some kind of like F Troop esque show. So I don't know yeah. if you can tell. He's really into the army. He's, <laughs> Again, it's, he's it's referred to as Colonel subtly. Fitz. Yeah, <laughs> it's very subtle. But <laughs> and wouldn't you know it? This guy's very conservative, and he doesn't like the fact that there's a gay couple two doors down. We know this because he mentions it every time we see him. <laughs> well, yeah, they are neighbors, John. And so, I mean, what are you, you going to not comment on your neighbors <laughs> as they walk by? <laughs> Particularly if they're homosexuals. <laughs> he sees them running. He, do, he does not use the term homosexual in the movie, by the way. No. He sees them. Again, in case you missed anything. He sees them running at one point, and he says, what is this, a pride parade? Like, <laughs> Or just two people running, <laughs> getting exercise. <laughs> and... So Allison Janney plays his wife, who is very reserved, very quiet. Implied that she's like been beaten down. Not just, yeah. Here's the problem with her character: not just reserved and quiet, like almost comatose. Exactly. It's almost like she's like belongs in an institution or something. Like she's been like she drugged. probably does. <laughs> like she's probably been lobotomized at one point. Like that's how she's playing it. It's yeah. so bad. At one point. Um... And again, why would you hire Allison Janney? She's so great. Like to do this. Well, she wasn't. She wasn't at the career trajectory she is now. Excuse me? Okay. Starring at a... She wasn't. What, what was she in before? She's never not been a star. Oh, no. Okay. She's always <laughs> she been, been a star She hadn't starred heart. in the West Wing yet. Okay. The, again, she hadn't, like, taken off. Like, people weren't aware. This was before the internet. <laughs> Everyone didn't have a web browser to visit IMDb and see what a wonderful actress she was. No or YouTube, had, you know? No, Diablo Cody hadn't written Juno yet, so... Exactly. <laughs> Speaking of movies that haven't aged well, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> it's oh, aged. oh! Now you're gonna, now you're going to defend Juno. <laughs> it's aged better than this. Okay. <laughs> In any event, yeah. Speaking of how just out of it, like she she literally is. Um, at one point, Chris Cooper's character finds that his son is smoking pot again, mm-hmm. and actually beats beats him to the point where he's bleeding. And of course, you you want you want characters who are likable and showing agency. Of course, Allison Janney's character just sits there. Yeah, well, again, just, you know, I think it's meant to imply that she's been so broken down. She's basically just a husk of a woman because of this man, because of this domineering figure in her life that she doesn't even like speak up. Period anymore. I think that's what. But again, it plays it so broad. Yeah, she might as well be in a coma. And wouldn't it be great if she maybe broke out of that and did, like, confront him at the end of the movie? You know, exactly. the character go through something and change oh, wouldn't it be great at the end of a story? Any character got an arc. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't yeah. that be great? Anyway. Yeah. And then we, we should have... probably, yeah, should we talk more about Ricky? Yes, let's talk about Ricky. Ricky's just just a bottle of fun. Yeah. Ricky is an art student. He, our, yes. he, he well, likes to film things. And he's yeah, we should say our introduction to Ricky is that he's secretly filming... The, the girl next door, Janie. Mm-hmm. Um, again, perfect introduction to our character. 
obviously we love Kevin Spacey's character for pining after a 17-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and of course, we, we identify with his character for secretly filming girls. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's meant to, again, reflect the audience. Like, this is a voyeuristic view into the like quiet life of suburbia, so we're meant to kind of relate to Ricky. He's meant to be his audience surrogate. Now, if he just wasn't such a weirdo, maybe that would work. Because, yeah. again, he has the same well, kind of... a weirdo, just a flat line. Yeah, he's, again, he's got that same flat affect that Allison Janney has, which is, you know, just, like, emotionally distant, just kind of cold. We see him kind of try to express himself through his filmmaking. Again, he makes these, like, you know, I took a, I took a video of a dead bird because it was beautiful. And it's so pretentious, it's just, ugh. <laughs> and again, like, maybe that's the point. Maybe it's the fact that it's like, oh, when we were all that age, we thought what we were filming was really deep when really it was nothing. Yeah. Like, but again, does it play to that? No. If anything, it just doubles down on it. Yeah. And it's just another character that I think the, the movie really kind of condescends to. Mm. If it does regard him as pretentious and... <laughs> It's just another, yeah, it's just another character that it that the, the movie doesn't really bring any likability out of. No, absolutely not. And yeah. the other thing with him is the fact that he's really drawn to Jane, the next-door neighbor girl, who's a little frumpy. She's not a typical kind of beauty, and totally ignores Angela, who is the, you know, ar- uh, archetypical, you know, high school Yeah, the bombshell, bombshell who, yeah. who Lester she acknowledges loves. attracts all the male's gaze, including... Her friend's father. <laughs> Angie wants to be a model one day, and we see her very vivacious and flirty. You know, when she finds out that Ricky films from you know the window over, she like kind of like strips down to her skivvies and starts like posing for him. Mm-hmm. But again, all he focuses on is uh, Jane. Can I point out one thing I did like about the movie? Go for that it. That has that has aged well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of camera, it's a cinematography. Now Sam Mendes, this was his first film. He'd worked in theater for many years. This is Alan Ball's first official screenplay. He he also did a lot of theater, which explains why ex- how exaggerated and silly it is. But <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is it feels like it was written for the stage. Yeah, but you're speaking of those like windows, and the, that's actually one thing where it kind of did perk up is kind of the way things are framed within windows and I don't know, just the general lighting and just added, it's he he hired Conrad Hall, who's a multi Oscar winning cinematographer, and so it, that's. Just to get back to the positives, that is one thing I did like about the movie. Great. Technically, it's fine. Yes. <laughs> That's before we get into Act 3. Because <laughs> this, is, this is where, I, in returning to the movie, I thought, like, whoa, this, <laughs> this, is, this is where the, the hurricane really, just, and the movie just sinks. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got all our characters into place. We've got the Colonel and Ricky. We've got the uh, Burnham family. And um, Kevin Spacey, yes, is as job. Um, Annette Benning's character is having an affair with another real estate agent. Yep. And when he finds out, they call it off, and she's pissed. And she, <laughs> uh, to, to get a release, she's been going to a well, yeah. So, she's so, been going to a gun range. Yeah. And she's, she's been blowing off steam. So yeah. after the affairs, she well, again, no, okay, we should. I want to go back. <laughs> you're you're laboriously explaining <laughs> what's going on in the third act. What the point is that. It's not even like set, things aren't like set up properly. Like you said, there was in the gun range, but everything in the third act depends on coincidence. <laughs> is my problem. Yes, it's very contrived. Yeah, and the thing is, all stories rely on coincidence and contrivance. But like uh, the better stories hide that or establish it early and then go forward from there. But everything in the third act depends on coincidence to kind of drive the story forward because that's when i really checked out i realized like there had been two acts in the movie i'm like what's the driving force like what's pushing these characters forward well again and i realized there was nothing if they went with the whole murder mystery plot that would maybe make it interesting yeah like maybe setting you like again foreshadowing but the only foreshadowing you get is the little opening narration from lester at the beginning telling you i'm going to be dead by the end of this movie and again yeah. we're not uh we're not privy to the idea that's actually murder it could be suicide for all we know. It could be a car accident. He could crash yeah. his Pontiac. Who cares? Yeah. So two thirds of the movie, there are no stakes. There's no forward momentum. Exactly. It's just miserable. And now we have to rely on miserable. kind of these coincidences. You mentioned uh, Annette's Benning character is having an affair. They go to the drive-through, the fast food drive-through, where by coincidence Lester is working, and that sets and that sets her off. Where she now wants to kill her husband. <laughs> she, I think, she just wants to threaten him. And again, she's doing her little affirmation things, and she's like, I will not be a victim. Like, what is this victimization? You got caught having an affair. 
Like what? Well, that's not, that's not even the worst one, John. <laughs> well, again, like I wanted to focus on the gun subplot because, again, like they might as well have yeah, flashed instrumental, flashed too, yeah. green lights, like Chekhov's gun, Chekhov's gun, Chekhov's gun, <laughs> and and so that's like one potential murder suspect we kind of have if it actually played up the murder yeah, mystery. Yeah, if you cared in the last thirty minutes, exactly <laughs> how Lester died. Mm-hmm. At this point, I didn't because yeah, you're right. You don't like Lester, <laughs> exactly. And so then we have uh, Ricky and Jane. They decide. Well, no, first there's Ricky and Lester. He Ricky is selling pot to Lester, but from the way that um, <laughs> talk way about that, contrivance. Yeah, exactly. From the way that you know, so, literally Chris Cooper. Hold, says all right, it. L- hold on. Let's back up a little bit. Colonel Fitz yeah. is obviously he's getting suspicious of his son. He knows he's doing pot again. He knows he's not behaving behaving in the manner that he would like. So he starts investigating, and he finds one of his tapes that he filmed. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> he filmed Lester working out shirtless. Yes. yes. Naked. Dozens of hundreds of tapes in his room. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Honey stumbles on is the one of him videoing a shirtless male. <laughs> uh, and it's not it's not meant to be it's just him observing. It's not meant to be sexual in any way. But obviously no. Colonel Fitz is a massive homophobe. Now he's suspicious. So oh, when a massive homophobe Oh, interesting. <laughs> I know. Oh. And then when Ricky goes over to sell pot to Lester he watches and him. roll his yes and roll his joint for him so he has to bend down <laughs> talk about contrivance that, yeah lester is working out at the time so he's shirtless mm-hmm. and so colonel fitz is watching from next door and the way it's framed is we see ricky bend over to a shirtless lester and lester kind of relaxes and puts his arms back it looks yeah. like he's blowing him yeah and he's already seen money be exchanged he thinks his son's a gay prostitute. Yeah. And uh, oh, what wacky the, we- webs we weave. <laughs> not wacky weave, John. John, it's very deep and meaningful because it's about perspective. <laughs> and so look closer. The problem is you can you can do that a million ways without seeing, having it be so contrived and terrible. <laughs> so when he, Ricky returns home, obviously the colonel is pissed off. He beats Ricky. But Ricky kind of stands up for himself and with his words kind of dresses down the colonel is basically like, you're a weak man. And he cries and he's upset. And so Ricky's like, I'm done. I'm leaving. And again, he tells Alice and Janie this. He's like, I'm leaving. And she's like, okay, wear a coat. You know, something like banal like that. Yeah. And so he's going to run away with Jane. Uh, the colonel kind of goes over to confront Lester. Well, we should probably explain they want to go to New York City, which oh, hasn't right. been established at all. <laughs> Let's just run away to New York City, that magical utopia in New York City. That's where all young people want to end up. I know. I've seen it on Friends. <laughs> and Seinfeld. Yeah, it's great. It's the cool, hip place. I mean, it kind of makes sense. He's like an arty person. Like, where do you go if you want to do art? You go to New York. Um, the Shangri-La of art. Mm-hmm. So le- uh, the colonel confronts Lester. And in this confrontation, you know, you think he's going to, like, punch him or something or, like, act out physically. Instead, the colonel cries. And Lester kind of comforts him. Yeah. And then the colonel tries to put the moves on and kiss Lester. Holy fucking shit. You're telling me that the homophobe really had, like, gay thoughts himself? Oh, my fucking God. What a surprise. <laughs> and it, this is just this is the time to do it, too. <laughs> like, hell, why didn't he just go over to the, the two gay neighbors and put the moves on them earlier? Exactly. <laughs> you have ample opportunities. I know. You've got truck stops. You've got the woods you can cruise in. Like, the 90s were a plethora of opportunities. Everybody's gay. It's the 90s. <laughs> um, Lester rebuffs him. He says, like, I'm sorry, I don't swing. It's not it. like that. Yeah. I believe it, his exact words. Mm-hmm. So even disproving further that his son is not a gay prostitute. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the colonel just kind of, like, walks away dejected into the rain. We should, Yeah, we should also probably explain, like, before it was all light and colorful. Now this entire third act takes place in the rain at night. Exactly. In torrential yeah, downpour. It just makes a miserable movie even worse <laughs> in some respects. <laughs> so we go back to Ricky and Jane. They they want to run away together. And also Angie's around. And this is an opportunity for like Ricky and Jane to kind of dress her down and be like, you're not as pretty as you think you are. You're not as interesting as you think you are. You're boring. You're a basic bitch. This obviously destroys Angie. She's, she's gotten her comeuppance. <laughs> her poor, fragile heart. Where does she go? She runs right to Lester. Because she yeah. knows Lester is interested in her. He knows Lester finds her 
beautiful. So she puts the moves on Lester, just like the colonel did. Again, mm. like, all of a sudden, Lester is, like, <laughs> the guy. Like, it's almost like wish fulfillment. It's like, everyone wants to have sex with me. <laughs> well, yeah, he's been working out for two weeks at this point. <laughs> and his whole body, like, transforms. Yeah. He goes from, like, a paunch to a six-pack. That, that, yeah. Well, it does not, not that much. All right, fine, yeah, I, was, yeah. I was exaggerating slightly. Yeah. <laughs> but still. You do. I'm sure Kevin Spacey lost a little weight, and it was part of his uh, awards campaign. <laughs> oh, my oh. gosh, Kevin Spacey transformed for the role. <laughs> the physical transformation, amazing. Yeah. And Lester, obviously, he's been waiting for this the whole movie, and he starts putting the moves on her. Mm-hmm. We sound like 50s parents right now, <laughs> putting the moves on her. They start undressing. It gets hot and heavy. It gets hot and heavy. They start a yeah. mackin'. Yes. And, and that's when Angela reveals, I'm actually a virgin. Holy you know, fucking shit. a big game. You're telling me that the slutty girl <laughs> hasn't actually had sex yet. Oh, my fucking God. See, John, it's all about appearances. Look closer. I get, yes. If you, if you missed it the first eight times about, you know, hey, there's more than meets the eye. <laughs> Let's hammer that nail home one more time. So Lester, obviously, with this new knowledge, isn't really interested in her anymore. He backs off, and he says, no, I'm not going to have sex with you. And they kind of have a nice little cute moment. I, I, I do kind of like the fact that he didn't, you know, end up going through with it. Again, it's like the only heroic thing he's done all movie. <laughs> and I don't, know, I don't know, John. He quit his job. I mean, that's pretty heroic. <laughs> so now we have... And threatened and threatened a to call his his supervisor a gay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now we have these three storylines converging. We've got Ricky and Jane about to run off. We've got Annette Benning coming home. Yeah. We've got Angela and Lester in the kitchen. She goes to the bathroom, and then we hear a gunshot. Someone has shot Lester in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is the closure to his arc, because his whole life flashed before his eyes. It was like a second stretched out to infinity. It's an ocean of time, John. <laughs> I believe. And then we actually get some flashbacks of the family happy. Oh, thank God. We yeah. finally got it. <laughs> and again, like... Only in death. <laughs> yeah, only in death. So it's like, finally, he learned his lesson as he dies. That there was so much beauty in the world. And, you know, it's like the character redeemed himself in his final yeah. moments, I guess. Yippee. And again, it's done in, you know, black and white, and it's super pretentious, just like the rest of the movie. Like, yippee. And we know we know Ricky and Jane, and Jane didn't do it. We know Annette Bening didn't do it. I don't even remember no, her. Yeah, I as, keep calling her Annette Bening. Yeah, the camera reveals their reactions to the gunshot. It's clear that Annette Bening is not actually in the house, even though she's cradling her gun. <laughs> <laughs> and it's done with the same gun that she's been using at the firing range. And then it's revealed that the one who shot Lester was Colonel Fitz. Because he was so despondent that he was rejected <laughs> of his sexual advances that he just yes. he had to physically lash <laughs> They've out. They've talked twice before this, <laughs> and he springs a sexual advance on him, and he just decides this man does not deserve to live. <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes sense again physically lashing out. Like this is what he does. This is how he deals yeah. with his emotions. But again, mm-hmm. like why? And revealing a secret, I guess. I guess big reveal. But, yeah, it's a it's a contrived mess. <laughs> I hated this movie. This is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Wow. I'm I'm stunned by that. I mean, because I think there's things to like about the movie. Not the characters, especially, but... (laughs) And, like, the production value, some of the story beats, like, little moments here and there, but... Yeah, to say... John, you've seen a lot of movies in your time. To say this is one of the worst, I I fear you may be exaggerating slightly. No, I really hated it that much. Okay. Yeah. I give it three stars. (laughs) Out of a... Billion. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> overrated. Cold, I'm going to take my cold, big cold overrated you're, you're stamp. You're as cold as the universe. <laughs> All things end up in entropy, towards entropy. And that's where this movie left me. Just hollow inside. Entropic hatred. Exactly. <laughs> Just spreading it everywhere. <laughs> it's like a second stretched out to infinity. Yep. I had always heard your entire life flashes in front of your eyes the second before you die. First of all, that one second isn't a second at all. It stretches on forever, like an ocean of time. For me, it was lying on my back at Boy Scout camp, watching falling stars.
and yellow leaves from the maple trees that lined our street. Or my grandmother's hands and the way her skin seemed like paper. First time I saw my cousin Tony's brand new Firebird. It's just, it's so pretentious and over the top. And just, again, like, I just hate things that are not as smart as they think they are. Which okay. is actually true of a lot of Kevin Spacey's work. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, House of Cards. Hey, John, are you saying that? It's a little contrived that a senator could rise to the presidency through murdering people. <laughs> well, that's the thing. He only like murders two people through the whole series. Okay. And it's like the whole series is I just... Thought it, I thought it was a whole murder fest. Like he got No, that's to... the thing. The show is actually very boring. Okay. <laughs> There's not a lot that happens. It's a lot of conniving. But again, like those first two seasons are built on like those two murders. He okay. kills uh, Corey Stoll and um, Kate Mara. Spoiler alert. Nice. <laughs> and like, in case anybody's watching House of Cards anymore. Yeah, and again, like the rest of the series is just, when is the other shoe going to drop and this is going to be found out? So, I mean, they do kill a prostitute eventually, but that's pretty much okay. it. And a dog, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's in the first episode. That's literally, okay. the, that's literally the first scene of the first episode. <laughs> Hooray. It's called Foreshadowing People, all right? Nice. No Child Left Behind. <laughs> that should be the title of this episode, No Child Left yeah, Behind. Yeah, No Child Left Behind. <laughs> I know. Oh, I'm sorry you didn't like American Beauty. Mm. But I'll give you something you will like, John. Oh. What? And that's Spotlight. Yeah. Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. Let's do some fucking, fucking Spotlight. spotlight. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys talked for like fucking hour about <laughs> some movies. And then you ended with movies I'm never going to watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, for Spotlight today, I have a TV show. Ooh. Yes. It's uh, in its final season. But I think it's, I think that's a good thing. It's It's going out just the right time. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that a serialized TV show should only last like four to five seasons. At most. Exactly. Because <laughs> I don't have this kind of time. <laughs> well, Sorry, then, the then the narrative just gets messy. And, yeah, just, yeah. You just gotta like, don't. again, keep topping yourself. My time is precious, yeah. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Um, today I want to recommend for you Orphan Black. Ooh. Yes, I know you haven't you haven't you haven't recommended this to me enough. Exactly, I love. And it's this been show. such a joy to ignore it because of that. <laughs> oh, you bitch! <laughs> Orphan Black, I it's 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 hard to talk about because it, it's it's cagey with the premise for about the first episode and a half. It starts clones, mm-hmm. so the idea is that the uh, starring actress Tatiana Masalani uh, is playing multiple characters. And as the ship show progresses, it's revealed that, you know, there's at least like two dozen clones out there. But really, it only the show only focuses on five. You've got Sarah Manning, who's the ostensible main character, the main protagonist. She's a bit rough around the edges. She's a bit of a grifter. Mm-hmm. She returns to town after years of being away for, you know, not quite clear reasons. And as she's returning, she sees a distraught woman on the train tracks or on the, at the train station. And when the woman turns around, it turns out she looks exactly like her. Whoa! <laughs> and then the woman gets hit by a train. Okay. Oh, well, it's okay. I didn't want to... <laughs> I don't mean to be flippant, but... <laughs> and, uh... I mean, you've, you've explained, I guess, the, the virtue of the show is that this, this actress plays literally uh, at least eight different characters. So, again, like, there's really only five. Because they are all clones? Yeah, they're all clones. Kind of she obviously, them. she shows off a lot of range, but there's really only five clones you need to worry about. There's Sarah Manning, who's the main protagonist, and then you have Kasima, and she's kind mm-hmm. of the kooky one. If you, okay. if this were NCIS, she'd be the Abby Shuto. She's got dreadlocks. She okay, wears glasses. Thanks. Use an analogy everybody knows. <laughs> NCIS. And she's a lesbian. Ooh, nature versus nurture? What's going on here? Um... <laughs> Then you have Allison, who's kind of the suburbanite mom. She's the prim and proper one. She's uptight. She does yoga. She does musical theater. She's very kind of like... And it gets a lot of comedy mileage out of her dumb husband, Donnie. Okay. And then you have the antagonistic clones. You have Rachel, who works for the evil corporation that actually produced these clones. 
and okay. she's known her whole life she's a clone and for that she thinks she has like a massive superiority complex she thinks she's kind of like better than everybody else and she kind of has like this kind of highlander idea that it's like <laughs> there can be only one <laughs> and since you know i would probably do that too if I was <laughs> and since she's been raised in this uh program she kind of views them not as like sisters as the other clones do as our protagonist clones do she re- she thinks of them as products and she kind okay. of thinks of them as disposable. So the show gets a lot of mileage out of her just being like a cold-hearted evil bitch. Okay. John, I, I, I'm not going to lie. This is all sounding a little broad and a little silly. Um, when you that's talk the about th- how I think the that's character the is like one, one silly and, you know, we get comic mileage out of his dumb, dumb husband. Okay, dumb, so dumb that's husband. the thing. Yes, like all TV shows, it, start, it starts off as kind of broad caricatures. But again, from there, the show's, you know, five seasons long you kind of build off from there and they get to time to develop. Okay. And then of course I haven't gotten to everyone's favorite clone, Helena. Right. Because Helena is batshit crazy. Okay. <laughs> she was I thought you were gonna say she's the badass, you know, action hero. She kinda is. She was okay. she was raised in a convent and uh, an abusive convent and she's basically like semi feral. <laughs> okay. She uh she was raised in the Ukraine so she has a Ukrainian accent. And she's kind of a survivalist. She's good with knives. Uh, she can kill people without a second thought, without any kind of guilt whatsoever. She's very capable. And for most of season four, actually, sadly, she gets kind of sequestered away. And we see her kind of like hunt and gather for herself. And she's just, obviously, this is the one that Tatiana clearly relishes in the most. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you got a great supporting cast. You've got a, um, he has a... Tatiana. Yep. <laughs> Tatiana, Tatiana. <laughs> she has a, a gay stepbrother named Felix. Uh, she's got her foster mom, Mrs. S. I don't know what her sexuality, his sexuality has to do with anything. Oh, well, I mean, it, it gets a lot of mileage out of how like kind of fierce he is. So. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you love that comic mileage, don't you? I do. I, I do love that comic mileage. I know. How do you, you keep laugh. it fresh? They do. Okay, they keep it fresh. Okay. But yeah, it's a really fun show. It's uh, got a lot of kind of like sci-fi kind of elements while still kind of keeping it grounded. I mean, I'm not going to lie, there's one character who has a tail. <laughs> He's been genetically engineered to have a tail. What? <laughs> yes. You can't just bring this on me. <laughs> That's what makes it kind of fun. Okay. Five, se- five seasons, though, John? Ugh. That's what makes it hard to talk about, because it's like you can't talk about any plot point without it being kind of a spoiler. But Okay. Yeah. Work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor baby. Grant mm. has to watch a TV show. I know. So long. <laughs> You could be watching 30 Rock again for the millionth time. This is true. Because they just in and out. It's quick. <laughs> Hour long drama. Uh, who's got that kind of time? I mean, the first four seasons are all streaming on Amazon, so you really have no excuse if you've got Amazon Prime. The show is not sponsored by Amazon Prime. No. And until you John's do, just, go John's fuck just yourself. A, a, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm swearing a lot. I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm just, I'm full of vinegar today. Yeah, you are. Well, John, this is actually a coincidence that you hated our movie this weekend. Okay. Because I, <laughs> I had a moment of weakness. Oh no. And actually sought out a B movie. Oh dear. A movie that is um, so bad it's good. Now, generally, I don't like these kind of movies because they make me feel bad and embarrassed mm-hmm. for the people behind them. Yeah. We don't like to relish in failure. No, and, and it's especially you know coming from, coming from where I am, <laughs> an aspiring artist myself, you know. <laughs> I don't think I don't think we should you know I don't take any Schadenfreude out of it. Mm. But I, this movie was uh, special in particular. Um, have you heard of the story of Ben and Arthur? Yes, that is a I remember this because for a while it was number one on the IMDb's worst rated list. Yes. Okay. It's also actually a financial allegory, wherein two high school students uh, both invest their money early and become millionaires by fifty. Oh, great. <laughs> yes. So just a little coincidence there. So it's just like the Book of Henry. Yes. The Book of Henry is a remake of the of Ben and Arthur. Good to know. Yes. No, there's no financial dealings with Ben and Arthur. Ben and Arthur is a gay romance okay. slash thriller released in 2002. And it's kind of stuck there, actually, because it, it's clearly advocating for marriage equality. Yes. The problem is, it's shot exclusively on a VHS camera inside people's L.A. apartments. <laughs> what are you saying? I'm, I'm saying it's, 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 it's terrible in fresh and entertaining ways. <laughs> so we have our, our two 
protagonists are the titular Ben and the titular Arthur. Arthur is played by the writer, director, casting director, <laughs> music person, and cinematographer named uh, Sam Mravich. <laughs> Where did you watch this? YouTube. Oh, great. Yeah, so it just came <laughs> It's came across my radar. It's only 80 minutes long. <laughs> Again, because your so, time is precious. Yes, and it moves at a breakneck pace. You'll never... A lot of these so bad it's good movies, you get kind of like bored just because they don't know how to entertain an audience <laughs> with, with the tools of cinema. This in the early going doesn't really have that. Instead, you have uh, like little things. Like in the story, they can't um, get married in... Or at least they want to get married in Hawaii, can't, um, just because of the law. But they can get married in Vermont. So they obviously take an Alaska Airlines flight <laughs> to... Vermont, when which is covered in palm trees. <laughs> okay. And then they fly a FedEx plane back home. Great. Where Arthur's brother obviously objects to their union, hates homosexuals, you know, just doesn't want to do anything with them. And the the church he belongs to hates the idea of homosexuals so much they kick him out of the congregation for having a gay brother. Wow. So, you know, kind of a, a tenuous relationship with reality. <laughs> Who gets murdered just at the end? That's all I want to know. Well, it's it's funny you mention that because Ben and Arthur get a lawyer. They get representation so that their union is uh, recognized. And they get all the same rights that are afforded to them. Yay! Now, of course, Arthur's brother hates hates this union so much. He hates the homosexuals so much. So he thinks the most prudent course of action would be to murder this lawyer. <laughs> and so he does that and it's never brought up again. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not a spoiler, by the way. It happens in about... The, 20-minute mark? All right. You know, yeah. it might be interesting if he killed his brother, then you got, like, a Cain and Abel kind of connection there. Again, going so with the maybe, whole church. Yeah, maybe. That, yeah. No, that's too smart. Why are we trying yeah, to... What would, yeah, what would Cain and Abel li- look like if it were set in Los Angeles, in a Los Angeles apartment? Because <laughs> that's one demerit, is that it, it all takes place in literally just... Just one demerit? Apartments. Oh, okay. Good to know. There's only yeah. one demerit for this whole movie. Good to know. <laughs> so, it's it's entertaining. It's It's silly... <laughs> If you do want to relish in Scheidenfreude, I would certainly seek Ben and Arthur out. I think certainly deserving is on IMDb's bottom 100. But it sounds earnest, and I think that's... that's it does sound earnest. That's what kind of makes it all the more pathetic. That's, I, the, I mean, that's the key to a, a movie that's so bad it's good, is that they're, they're that too, genuinely yeah. trying and yeah. failing. <laughs> yeah. Versus, like, the the Sharknados of the world. Exactly. That, that don't come from a, an earnest place. Like, you don't feel the the kind of heart behind it and so well i think that's why i find movies like american beauty so execrable it's like they had everything behind it you've got sam yeah you're right sam mendez is obviously very talented cinematographer is very talented the writer Mm -hmm. i assume somewhere deep down inside (laughs) probably has something important to say and it's just like it's just a mess from start to finish so it's like that that's a worse crime in my head it's like when Mm -hmm. hollywood puts out again because you're the professionals yeah, when you come they know, out, they with know like, how to do this. Yeah, yeah, when you come out with like Assassin's Creed, that hurts so much more than when <laughs> you know, like Thailand is trying to you know make a ripoff of Rocky or something. I don't know. You just land on Assassin's Creed out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a it's a special little movie. Okay, and maybe worthy of one of those. Um, Vice does a series of documentaries about these kind of cult films, mm-hmm. mostly terrible cult films. <laughs> And, you know, and that all have a happy ending, like audiences enjoying a, a, a nice screening for it and the, the director getting some validation. So, oh. you know, maybe that'll happen to Sam Mervich. <laughs> That's sweet. Oh. Yeah, that'd be nice for him. Oh, we, we ended yeah. on a positive note. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I feel bad. <laughs> you just wasted a perfectly good spotlight. Thanks a lot. I know. Thanks I a do. lot. <laughs> I know what will cheer me back up. What's that? Subscriptions. Yes. <laughs> to our wonderful podcast. You know, why don't you spread some positivity around by giving us a five-star review on... Yeah, it'll make the world better. <laughs> iTunes, or maybe Stitcher, or maybe... <clears throat> Apple, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. <laughs> um, Stitcher, SoundCloud, just give us a subscription, give us a rating, and just... It would really make our day. It would really cheer us up. And that's all we ask. Really. That, yeah. And maybe... We just gave you an hour of entertainment. What, what are you giving to us? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's all we ask. And maybe yeah. if you can promote me in contact with Scott Bakula, that would be cool too. Because you know, <laughs> I have some, I have some things I want to say. Yeah, I, John, I know you can get in touch with him. Social media. That's a good idea. Why don't I yeah. reach this out? Social, this social media thing is taking off. Why don't I reach out to him on Twitter with the aspiring snobs handle? At aspiring. That's great. Snobs. Or you can do it through Facebook. Yep. 
you can like the Aspiring Snobs Facebook page. And write a petition to Scott Bakula to meet us in person. Be a guest on the show. <laughs> We're going to start a Kickstarter so John Mantell can meet Scott Bakula. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, go fund me. <laughs> Contribute to the Aspiring Snobs GoFundMe campaign. <laughs> no, we wouldn't, ask, we wouldn't ask money for nothing. Of course. And you meeting Scott Bakula, John, I'm sorry, is not a worthy cause. What? <laughs> you monster. <laughs> you don't know the feelings I have inside. Look closer, Greg, okay? <laughs> I did. I see. I see more ugliness. Oh. Than a terrible waste of two hours. You're, everyone's you're, you're, I see. I see more ugliness and a terrible waste of everyone's time. You're again. a cruel, cruel man. You're a cruel, cruel man. <laughs> well, thanks everybody for listening. Yeah. And until next time, keep aspiring. <laughs> <laughs>